Hello there, you're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill, and unfortunately I'm without Dylan Johnson this week, but I'm still going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend, and I'll be discussing the latest installment of the franchise with Robots in Disguise, Transformers, Rise of the Beasts. All right, let's go straight into the news. So big, huge, humongous news coming out this past week. The release date shuffle has returned. This one comes from Disney. So Avatar has been delayed. Avatar 3 no longer coming out next year. It will now be 2025. Avatar 4 going to 2029. And Avatar 5 to 2031. So this one is most likely due to VFX stuff. And James Cameron wanting to perfect everything that he possibly can before these films hit theaters. Not likely due to the writer's strike as many other films that we're going to talk about are probably getting pushed back for. But Avatar, no stranger to delays and getting pushed back. Avatar 2, even before the pandemic, was getting pushed back a whole, whole lot of times. So this is honestly not too surprising. And Avatar 3, since, again, they've already done so much work on that production, happened alongside Avatar 2. I think 2025, it'll probably stick to that one. But the 2029 and 2031 dates, I I don't even think those are going to get made, to be honest, in those years. Those will probably get pushed back even still, which is crazy, because it'll be 20 plus years after the original came out. Man, that is scary to think about and it's funny this franchise doesn't even lead doesn't even need legacy sequels because any sequel (laughs) is a legacy sequel but moving on to a different franchise from disney's catalog that is also getting pushed back the avengers film so the two-parter king dynasty and secret wars both of those have been pushed back originally they were supposed to come out in the same year 2025 but then they quickly changed that because that was a very bold choice that I don't think would have worked out well so they made them a year apart and then now they've both been delayed King Dynasty now 2026 Secret Wars 2027 again that's partially due to the writer strike I believe the writer of Quantum Mania was supposed to be on King Dynasty and I think they've secretly sort of gotten rid of him as the lead writer on that and so they're going to need to find a replacement and whoever that is they're not going to be able to be working on it during this time and the Jonathan Major situation. I'm sure they're trying to figure out how to get around that um, before they have to do any sort of production on King Dynasty. So this gives them more time to deal with all that. Deadpool, in contrast to all these other films, it has not been pushed back. It's actually been moved forward. It's no longer going to be November 24. We're actually going to get it May 2024. Primetime summer season. That's pretty incredible. It's filming right now. However, due to the right to strike, apparently there's not going to be any improv from Ryan Reynolds. So I guess that'll make things more streamlined and they're very confident in being able to have everything completed by May 2024, which again is within a year, like less than a year. So that's pretty remarkable. We'll see if that actually comes to fruition or if they might have to delay it to a little bit later in the summer season. But it seems like they do want to have that as the big marquee summer slot other marvel films that have been pushed thunderbolts is taking avatar 3's december 2024 slot so they're not going to let 
Sonic 3 get the December Christmas season all to itself. They had to come in and cut down the Blue Hedgehog's legs there. Blade has been pushed to February 2025. Captain America 4 has been pushed a few months to July 2025. Originally it was May of that year. And Fantastic Four is going to be taking that May slot to officially open up the summer movie season for that year. So a lot of changes happening. I know Sony also recently had come out with some release dates that they solidified seeming to be their Venom film. Venom 3 seems like that was the October 2024 one that it had, although there's also speculation that that might be the new slot for across, or for Beyond the Spider-Verse, rather, when that gets delayed. Because, yeah, we'll have to see if it'll be able to make its uh, very, very soon upcoming release date of March 2024. And then there's also a 2025 date they had selected, but it's probably not going to be the MCU Spider-Man 4, even though there have been recent reports of negotiations opening with Tom Holland about him returning for a Spider-Man 4. But again, with the writer strike, I don't think they'll be able to get that off the ground that quickly. Although those Sony MCU Tom Holland Spider-Man films have been very quick turnarounds. I mean, each of them were two years, like it started out in 2017 and then even with a pandemic, they closed out a trilogy in 2021. So they've done it before. They've been fast-paced. We'll have to see, though, if they can do it this time. They should probably hold off, I would say, especially just to let the writer strike run out and then figure out a plan for what they want to do with this next trilogy and making sure that, that ties in with whatever the overall MCU plans are. Because, again, they're having to think a lot about that based on the recent disappointments with Phase 4 and Phase 5, and then, again, the whole Kang character, what are we going to do with that? Um, so, yeah, I think it might be best just to not try and jump into it. But, of course, uh, Spider-Man is the big cash cow for Sony, so they'll want to do whatever they can to get that going as quickly as possible. Switching from Marvel over to DC, we've been getting reports about Superman casting rumors and rumblings. Seems like three actors have been selected to come in for test screenings for the role. So Nicholas Holt, David Cornsweet, and a gentleman by the name of Tom Brittany, who I have not heard of before this point. But all three of them seem to be the uh, final selections. And so through this test screening process, we will see which one comes out on top as our next Clark Kent. Or maybe there will be a secret name that hasn't been leaked out yet, and they might end up taking it. But of the three that we see here, I can't comment on Tom Brittany. As I said, I've not seen any of his work, so can't speak to that. Nicholas Holt, it's interesting because there were also reports of him apparently being in the running for Lex Luthor. And I think that would fit him so much better just based on what I've seen of his filmography. I mean, going back to <laughs> Mad Max, way back when, we know that he can pull off being bald. So that's one point in his favor for the Lex character. And then just from his work the past year, like The Menu, Renfield, that sort of stuff, like especially in The Menu, since I saw that one, I haven't seen Renfield, but saw the trailers for that. But those sort of characters definitely seem to be more in line with the antagonist role um also he was 
in X-Men as the Beast, so we know he can also play that sort of very intelligent character. So I think he would be great for that villain role. I don't know if I see him as Superman. I think Clark Kent, like that nerdier side of it, the more casual, everyday person, I think he could pull that off. But in the Superman role itself, like sort of just what needs to be brought out when he has the cape on, I'm not sure that Nicholas Holt would be able to do that. I've also heard that he was in the running for the Batman for Matt Reese's thing, but lost out to Robert Pattinson, obviously. And that also gives me pause to him being Superman, just because Bruce and Clark are such different characters. And if he was such a shoe in for Batman, I feel like I don't know how well that would translate over to Superman. Again, like it all comes down to performance and, he does seem like a great actor, so he could shift things and change things up. But he definitely seems more in line with, I don't know, a Lex Luthor character, or someone with a bit more of an edge to them um, and can be a little bit darker and have this shadier side. Whereas Superman, I think, needs to have those extremely wholesome, sincere vibes through and through. Um, and I think David Cordenswet, at least just visually, he absolutely fits the part. He's got the square jaw, the blue eyes. He's got the physique. I've also seen some of his work in Pearl, the sequel to X that came out last year. So that, his dynamic that he had there with Mia Goth and that, it wasn't a big part, but that little subplot I thought was really well executed. I thought he was a great performer. It's definitely not really a part that is reminiscent of Clark Kent or Superman whatsoever, but... I, I do think that means he has acting chops. And so during these test screenings, hopefully we'll be able to embody that character because again, just the look alone, like if you're going purely on looks, he's the guy, but it does come down to performance and being able to embody the character. And again, what I know from Nicholas Holt and David Cornsweet, I feel like Nicholas Holt would be better suited for Lex. And then therefore David Cornsweet hopefully has what it takes to embody Superman and Clark Kent. But we will see. We will see probably sooner rather than later. If, again, their release date is supposed to be 2025. Apparently James Gunn already finished the script, so the writer's strike shouldn't affect that. But even still, that is a very quick turnaround. So if they want to have that land in early to mid-summer 2025, then they're definitely going to have to have that casting come out very soon. And we will definitely be reporting on that when it does, but for right now, my money is on David Cornsweet. And in other news, the Golden Globes have been sold. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association is shutting down, which makes sense because recently it's been embroiled in controversy, first with the scandal about bribery of a lot of pieces coming out, talking about how the HFPA, which is a very like limited organization, there's not too many people in there, and so because of that, it's very easy to sway who will get the Golden Globes because you just have to get 20, 30 of them, bring them out to a dinner or some sort of event or give some gifts to a lot of them. And then you've already got a sizable portion of the voting body on your side ingratiated to you. And apparently that's what a lot of studios and um, production companies were doing. 
which happens anyway with the Oscars as well with those big four-year consideration campaigns and having like private screenings which come with a bunch of like dinners and access to like the stars and all that stuff um but with the Golden Globes it was much more rampant and much more obvious how that was affecting the results of things and then there's also the case of it coming out that there are no black members in the HFPA and so they had to take a year off that's why they didn't have Golden Globes in 2021 I believe um, as they were trying to sort that out and look at their membership and saying okay how can we change things to um, be more inclusive and representative of uh, you know the what sort of the landscape should be for looking at film Uh, and so yeah they were able to come back earlier this year however I so I guess uh, maybe it was 2022 then that they were off Um, either way this past year they definitely were back but didn't last long as they have now sold off Golden Globes to the Dick Clark Productions company and HFBA is going away for good so we'll have to see if the Golden Globes will be back this next year certainly they're not going away for good like that's why they got sold Golden Globes will still exist but whether they will have a televised event and ceremony this upcoming year remains to be seen just because I don't know like logistically they need to sort out who is going to be voting on the Golden Globes because if the HFPA if that's gone that was supposed to be a voting body now they have to figure out who is going to be the voting body for the Golden Globes. Um, so they have to figure that out as well as who is going to have broadcasting rights for the ceremony. Because I believe it was NBC or ABC, one of them. Um, one of those networks. And they, I believe their contract was already about to expire and this seemed like they wanted to get rid of it anyhow. But certainly with the sell-off, they are no longer the ones with those rights so we'll have to see who they try and shop around this broadcast ceremony to um, and whether or not that'll be able to be solidified in time for the ceremony which would take place early 2024 all right now let's jump into the box office breakdown for june 9th to the 11th coming up in first place transformers rise of the beasts with 61 million it was able to just beat out across the Spider-Verse, which had 55.5 million. So not too shabby of a second weekend at all. A 54% drop. Extremely solid, but Transformers was able to take the weekend in its debut. In third place, The Little Mermaid with 23 million. Guardians 3 with 7.2 million. It has since crossed the 800 million threshold. So it seemed well on its way to get to 850 million. But whether it can get up to and surpass guardians 2's number we will have to see but either way great performance and very very thrilled about that and it being in my roster for the box office draft fifth place the boogeyman with 7.1 million fast x coming in after that 5.2 million and tied pretty much with it also at 5.2 million super mario bros in its 10th week so compare that to fast x in its fourth week and they're just about tied so that shows the tremendous legs for super mario bros just how far the Fast and Furious franchise has fallen domestically. So, and then after that, there's a steep drop off to a lot of these smaller films about my father, 830,000, The Machine, uh, 570,000, and then Past Lives, 520,000. Although that's in limited release at the moment, it had the highest per theater average of 20,000 compared to 
16,000 for Transformers or as Beasts. And of course, Past Lives is on our radar. Definitely one of the most anticipated films that we learned about in the past few months. Definitely going to have an episode on that if we're able to watch it. Again, it's in limited release. It should be expanding just enough to get to playing around in our area. But I am just not sure why they decided in the most crowded month of a very crowded summer season to release this very tiny film. Um, but if we are able to see it, we want to have an episode on that. Either way, I'm sure we will talk extensively about it, certainly in our end of year lists, our top tens that we do for the year. So be on the lookout for that. But Past Lives was able to make the top 10. Now for the box office predictions for June 16th to June 18th, which includes Father's Day, The Flash is the new film on the block. It is a film in my roster, and I am so shocked and disappointed at the projections that we've heard lately. It's supposed to come in under 60 million, like we've seen 53 million, 55 million as the projections for this weekend. They used to be over 100 million. It's crazy how much it's fallen off. We will talk at great length, I'm sure, next week when we have an episode on it, because Dylan and I will be covering The Flash. Um, we'll discuss what happened with the box office, because this seems like for the longest time, like it was going to be a hit, a huge hit. And it is a massive disappointment, certainly for Warner Brothers, but also for me in the draft. I can't believe this. So that is very distressing. I'm on copium at the moment. I'm still going to say I'm going to try and manifest over 70 million for the, the weekend, the three day at least. But man, that is disappointing. All right, now to talk about Transformers Rise of the Beasts. So it's directed by Stephen Cable Jr., the cast on the human side of things, Anthony Ramos and Dominique Fishback. Peter Cullen, of course, is returning as the voice of Optimus Prime. And then many of the other Transformer voices we got here, Pete Davidson, Michelle Yeoh, Ron Perlman, Peter Dinklage, Coleman Domingo. So a lot of great voices in the mix there. And the Rise of the Beasts, sort of a soft reboot slash prequel to the mainline Transformers franchise that we've had. Just to talk a bit about my own attachment to the franchise. So the 80s cartoon, 90s cartoon, obviously that stuff is before my time. I remember seeing like reruns of the cartoons, or I don't know if it was a new like updated cartoon that they had in the 2000s, but I do remember seeing some of that stuff on TV. Um, but that stuff was never really my jam. I really got into the franchise and really became aware of it when Michael Bay adapted into the live action film that we first saw in 2007, Transformers. And then, of course, for that whole decade afterwards, where we had a total of five of those films and then a spinoff with Bumblebee right afterwards that Michael Bay didn't direct. But yeah, all those Michael Bay ones I did watch in theaters. Um, I remember enjoying that first one a lot. And then again, I mean, this was what I was seven or so when that first one came out. And then for most of it, I was yeah, a young kid or a young teenage boy. So having these huge crazy action sequences of these robots fighting each other and just complete and utter bayham as we like to call them with those michael bay films i mean it was right up my alley so 
I enjoyed them as a kid for being what you want to see, just crazy action on the big screen, nice popcorn flicks. I have not revisited these films in so long because even when I was younger, even around like Age of Extinction, I remember that. Again, still should be right in my alley as like 13, 14. But even that was starting to wear on me. And then certainly by the time The Last Night came out in 2017, I was just done with it. I was exhausted, burnt out, disappointed with the franchise. It all blended into the, just the same things happening, incoherent action, just lazy plotting. The human characters were completely uninteresting and useless. Uh, so yeah, by that point, I was I was checked out. And I think, I mean, most of the audience was too, because Bumblebee, which came out the year afterwards and was a prequel, like said in the 80s, meant to be more of a coming of age thing, much smaller scale. And apparently, by all accounts, a really good film, really well received critically. I think it has over a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. So the consensus for that film, definitely much better than what any of those other Transformer films had gotten. So yeah you think I would have seen that one, but I did not because I was already burnt out with the franchise. And I even remember hearing that it was really good. I mean, it had John Cena in it. So yeah, that had Haley Steinfeld. So there was every reason to go see it as a nice refresher. But even then I was just, uh, didn't want to subject myself to any of that Transformer stuff again. But even in preparation for this one, I did not go back and watch any of those other ones. I do kind of want to have a franchise retrospective episode on the Transformers stuff. If I can convince Dylan to do it, maybe for the next Transformers film, whenever that comes out, if that comes out, if Rise of the Beast is successful enough to get that sequel, we'll have to see. I'm not sure that it will be able to. Because again, the franchise, this is trying to be its resurrection. Bumblebee made like $450 million. The last night had made $600 million, so steep drop-off already from what it the previous one got Age of Extinction. Can you believe this? $1.1 billion. And that was the highest grossing film of that year, 2014. And the previous one before that, Dark of the Moon, the third one, had also gotten a billion. The one before that, Ranger and Fallen, had like $850 million, And then the original Transformers had $700 million. So it was started out very successful, got up to one of the biggest franchises of all time at that point. Again, I mean... 2011 before the avengers had even come out and gotten to a billion transformers got there and then again age of extinction was able to hit that mark but a steep drop off after that and then same with bumblebee so we'll have to see if rise of beast is able to even match bumblebee's 450 million um and then whether or not they'll be able to give that a sequel but i think it is notable that yeah the the franchise as a whole is an interesting one in terms of like 21st century 2000s sort of franchise all under the banner of one director right five films all the michael bay's name so it's purely his sort of vision of these characters which had started out as just you know these cartoons glorified commercials for a toy line by hasbro but yet they became iconic characters in their own right being one of the biggest movie franchises but then ultimately it has sort of fallen off and we'll have to see if this resurrection will be successful. But I think that's an interesting sort of arc to look at of how it started out so strong, got even stronger, became one of the big, biggest. And then from just its own sort of formula being rehashed over and over and exhausting the audience, it fell away. But 
again, I don't know if I'll ever be able to convince Dylan to subject himself to it. And also if I want to should subject myself to, especially those later ones. Um, but Rise of the Beasts, let's talk about this one. And I will say, like, I'll do a little non-spoiler segment, and then I'll delineate when we go into the spoiler review of the section. But I'm happy to say that, at least compared to my memories of many of those other Transformers films, this one is up there with the original Transformers as the best. So again, it's not saying much. Again, these were never, like, amazing films. But I did enjoy myself in the theater watching this one. It was... A funny incident I wasn't planning on going out to seeing it I honestly would have been fine just not going to see it at all but my power went out inexplicably randomly it wasn't even storming it had stormed earlier in the day but then late at night like 10 30 power goes out and I'm like huh and I was not tired at that point so I was like I don't really want to go to bed yet um so what can I do in this house that's completely dark and my phone's about to die. Let me go see that new Transformers film that just came out this, in that weekend. So that's what I did. And you know what? It definitely, I mean, either way, whether it was bad or not, it would have had to pass the time. But it was an enjoyable time in there. So my overall impressions of that is decent. It's solid. It's a genuinely okay blockbuster fare, I think. So just to dive in here with... Some of the general stuff, of course, this one, The Rise of the Beasts, bringing in the Maximals from the Beast War 90s show, I guess it was. So we have Optimus Primal, Air Razor, which is such a cool name, by the way. That was like the owl or hawk or whatever bird played by Michelle Yeoh. And then there's a cheetah and then a rhino. And those Maximals are just sort of there. They, The cheetah, I know, has at least one line. I don't think the rhino talks at all i just don't think they mention anything but i do think it's cool kind of refreshing to have these different sort of transformers come into the mix that are taking after animals rather than you know the cars like we've seen all the previous ones do uh so that was a nice spin on things for me as someone who doesn't have any attachment to those original you know beast war characters i do think it was a good choice to freshen things up put a new spin on it in that same vein, this one is also sort of that prequel. It's set in the 90s, and they have an entirely new cast of human characters, which these Transformers do, like every two films, pretty much. But um, I think setting in the 90s, and they have the whole soundtrack is like these old 90s hip-hop hits, which for me, not being a huge fan of the hip-hop genre, and also not being alive in the 90s, that didn't really affect me too much or you know contribute to... A very positive feeling but i know for sure if people are fans of those songs and that style of music and came from that era then hearing those songs and those needle drops would definitely bring back good memories i'm sure and give it a nice little nostalgia boost in addition to all those maximal characters talking about the human characters so anthony ramos of course is the star of this one i really like him from hamilton and from in the heights i think he's a really solid presence on the screen so i think he did really well in this one um his character again he's just down on his luck basically trying to provide for himself but also his family especially his younger brother who has some sort of um, sickness and ailment with his hands so that obviously 
makes us like him from the get-go, understanding where he's coming from and how he's having to get into these situations that are not so great, but he's doing them because he's trying to provide for his family. Um, So I think already that sort of approach to the character works, and then just the charisma that Anthony Ramos is able to imbue into that character works really well. Dominique Fishback, the other sort of main lead in this, I have not seen any of her past work, but I also thought she was solid in this. She is sort of a museum archaeologist, and they also, I liked how they sort of split up these characters um, where we see them separately until they eventually cross paths in the museum trying to get after this MacGuffin, this like ancient uh, like artifact that has one half of a trans warp key is what they call it. That's another thing. All these Transformers films have the some, some random space object that they have to always chase after, but they will eventually cross paths doing that. But I like how we sort of see her on her own as like an intern in this museum and she's very knowledgeable, very interested in the work, but her boss is very much not and is more just concerned about like uh, keeping up appearances and making things seem like they're doing well and being able to attract people into the museum. But uh, Elena is the character's name. She is much more focused on, you know, the actual work itself. And once this interesting artifact comes across, um, she's trying to get to the bottom of why it has these strange symbols that are unrecognizable um, and don't fit the like location, the geography and time period that they were saying that it should come from. So I think all of that worked. And then when they do get together, they're pairing, um, I think works well enough. Like, and it's nothing super memorable or super charming, but I think their dynamic and their chemistry was serviceable. It worked well enough. It was, entertaining they sort of have this banter of them being both from new york and so they're able to talk about like places they've been to and things like that um so yeah i think it worked well enough i think the the human relationship that probably worked the best although there wasn't like too too much of it um, which i do think actually helped it remain so strong was the brotherly relationship between uh noah anthony ramos's character and then his little brother um, they call each other Sonic and Tails. So that's a cute little thing that they have. Um, but then also when it becomes obvious that he needs to go off on this adventure with his Transformers, the kid like wants to come along with him. And it's like, oh, like I'm going to protect my big brother like he does for me. But of course, he's like, no, you can't come along. But then even then he sort of uh, holds it to one of the Autobots to make sure that he protects Noah or otherwise the little kid's going to come after him. So I think that stuff's pretty cute. It works well. Um, and then that goes to the other main sort of relationship that I think really works well in this. It's between Noah and his Autobot, you know, all the Transformers. It's sort of one character and then Bumblebee as the sort of like human and robot connection. And this one, it is Noah with Mirage, played by Pete Davidson. And I'm shocked at how likable this character was and how great I thought Pete Davidson was in the role um, of voicing this character. Like the energy was there. It was pretty funny. And then like that dynamic between him and Noah, I think they clicked really well. So that whole little relationship and answer that they always had together was really strong. Optimus in this film, I also think they did an interesting approach with him of he starts out much more fed up and annoyed and cynical with the humans and not seeing as seeing any real worth in them. But then over the course of the film, 
you know, he aligns much more with that optimistic version of the character that we see in the mainline Transformers films that, you know, does think humans have a place and are worthwhile and all of that stuff. So I think that was a, an interesting approach of having a lot of the drama earlier on come from Optimus just being very resistant to working with Noah and with those human characters, uh, but then eventually having to accept that that's necessary and then eventually actually enjoying having that company and believing in them as like people that are worthwhile allies. So that stuff was good. And then the action overall. So the CGI for the most part was really good. Again, that's another thing of like those original Transformers films, especially the one from 2007. Like that stuff holds up really well, especially compared to a lot of the CGI that we get nowadays where all the VFX companies are just so overworked. They can't spend enough time on it. It's like kind of miraculous how good a lot of those 2000s films look with their VFX. Transformers, with so much of it dependent on that, it does really, really look amazing. This one, for the most part, yeah, it looks really solid. There are definitely some moments where you can tell the strain was happening on the VFX companies, especially in that towards the end and like the third act battle. But for the most part, CGI looked good. And then the action I thought was also really solid. Things are a lot more coherent here than what was in the Michael Bay films, all that Bayham going on. However, there is just something that Michael Bay has, just an epic flair that he can give to things. So I don't think the highs were as high with this one, but for the most part, I do like that the action was a little bit more comprehensible in this one, um, even though, again, it does sort of fall victim to the like very muddy, gray, random barren landscape that they're fighting on in the third act. But they do, I think, have some really solid action moments throughout. Just nothing quite as special as anything you might find in the Bayham stuff. Um, and again, the lack of explosions, too. They definitely hold back on the explosions because it was getting insane in those uh, mainline Transformers films. But every now and then, you know, you do just need some massive explosions to give it that oomph. So it's sort of... It's a win in some areas and a loss in some areas with the action and not having Michael Bay on. But let us now jump into the spoilers. So similar to the action stuff, I think the writing for this is pretty spotty. Like in some areas, it's decent blockbuster writing, but in other areas, it's definitely like we're just throwing anything at the wall and trying to come up with workarounds in order to get to the next plot beat or action beat. So like I said, with Optimus's story, I thought that was pretty compelling approach to have a like genuine character arc for him in there. And then another way that manifested was he's trying to get home. Like he needs that transport key in order to get home in order to bring Bumblebee back to life because he gets killed fairly early on in this one, which again is another sort of problem they have of like, I feel like Bumblebee specifically as well has died like at least three times in this franchise, but then Optimus has multiple times as well. Like they just killed these people off. But it's like, we know they're going to come back together, especially since, again, this isn't like its own separate timeline. They haven't committed to that. So everyone knows that, okay, Bumblebee can't die because he's in those later movies. So I don't know why they did fake out death like this, but the idea of him needing to get back home, needing that transwarp key to get to Cybertron, where they can get to the Energon in order to resurrect Bumblebee, that 
I think works because then they contrast it with Noah wanting to get to that key in order to destroy it to make sure the earth stays safe. But in either case, both of them want to make sure they get the transwarp key away from the Terracons, I believe is what they're called. Whoever those bad guys are that are being sent out by Unicron. Giant planet-eating machine. So having that sort of battle and conflict there of they each are trying to get that key away from the bad guys, but for their own purposes, one wants to destroy the key, which is in direct conflict with Optimus needing that key to get back home. That is pretty compelling stuff. However, it does fall apart when you wonder about the other like faction that's a part of this the maximals they don't really have a stake in like wanting to leave obviously they don't want unicron to get the key but there's no real explanation for why the maximals never just destroyed the trans warp key outright like they've been on earth for thousands of years at that point they decided to split the key in half to make it harder to find and put back together but they never express any desire to like leave their home world i think had been destroyed i don't think it's exactly cybertron um or if it is they didn't care about going back to cybertron or whatever place like they just seemed content and happy to just stay out on earth for the rest of time basically so i don't know why they wouldn't have destroyed it way back when and then even here when the issue is like coming up i don't also know why they wouldn't have just been like let's get to the half of the key and then just destroy that so there's no way to put it back together because yeah they weren't like optimus trying to get back home for any reason so that part didn't really make sense there's other things that come out of like the there's some fail safe into fail safe code that they have in the transwarp key that will be able to stop it which we only find out about after there's no other options to have basically because the Terragons get the transwarp key. And then they did save it. I, I thought it was going to be a total like cop out Deus Ex Machina, but then they did at least set up part of it of, oh, the code is the symbols that Elena had been finding that she found on like the ancient artifact. And then on the other one, and when they go to some like underground cave, there's some little box or tomb or whatever that has those same sort of symbols so she's able to note all that stuff and then she realizes oh that's the key um so i was like okay that kind of makes sense because it gives a purpose to her doing that whole thing with those ancient symbols but it still is like did she need to put together those ancient symbols like wouldn't weren't those symbols that the maximals put there they would have known in order for them to create those like ancient um like statues or artifacts that would have those symbols embedded onto them would they really have forgotten what the code was so it's like i don't know she didn't really need to be the one to find those symbols and then realize that they're a code the maximal should have known that and then the whole thing of it being like a keyboard basically accessible only by like human-sized people rather than the the autobots or any of the robot-sized people that would need to be using that ship or that would be using a transwarp key that was also a little out there and just a way that they needed to have the human characters involved in that final fight but again it's like okay it works they gotta it's a little bit lazy and obvious but it has to be done in order for them to make sure that all those characters have a purpose and it did give the humans something to do something to work toward while the robots are all fighting so 
I think that worked out. I also think the going to a, another like more positive approach that they had with the brother, him giving a pep talk to Noah when they're in a low point in the battle. And so Mirage is able to like connect through the walkie talkie or some radio or whatever it is in order to have the brother talk to him and let him know, Hey, you got to keep fighting. And it gives them that extra push. I thought that was also a nice way to bring back around that relationship since the brother doesn't come on the mission, which I think is a plus because too many times it's like just randomly they have the kids in harm's way, like on this crazy adventure. So I like that they did just keep them home. They had Noah like make the right choice as a big brother and be like, no, you got to stay. But they didn't leave this thread hanging entirely. They had the brother come back in a meaningful way. So I thought that was pretty solid. With Bumblebee's thing, again, I already talked about like just the fake out death was a little absurd. We knew he was coming back. The way they did it, though, I thought they were going to build up to having Optimus having to make that very gut-wrenching decision to be like, the key has been activated. There's no other way to stop it now. I need to destroy it. However, Bumblebee is still like dead, and this means I won't be able to get back home, at least not through like Shroomsorb key, so it won't be anytime soon, and it won't be easily for me to get back home in order to resurrect Bumblebee. I thought that would have been a really solid way for them to just close out that, you know, character arc that Optimus was having. Um, and then to settle that conflict between him and Noah's sort of pursuits and what they wanted to do, what their motivations were for getting Transwarp Key. So they didn't do that. They had Bumblebee essentially randomly get brought back to life because they laid him onto a rock that has a lot of energon but is like dormant and doesn't get activated until i don't know the machine is at work and unicron's getting called and so that sends out a pulse of energon or something no clue no idea how it works again it's just a random thing they do to bring Bumblebee back i will say him re-entering the battle like skydiving and tearing things up that was pretty cool. However, I do think it definitely came too early for them to have a really compelling, dramatic beat of Optimus having to make the hard choice. Because if Bumblebee's already back, then it's like, okay, well, obviously, destroy the key in order to save Earth and not let Unicron come through and get the key. There's no like personal element keeping Optimus wanting to, like, keeping him from destroying the key at that point because i mean yeah you want to get back home to cybertron but they've been gone for so long if it's his like best friend is dead and cybertron is the only way for them to resurrect him then there's more of a drama there and the decision to destroy the warp key is much more powerful but again bumblebee's already back so you don't need that anymore to save your friends you've already been gone from cybertron for so long like it's not as intense of a decision so I think they sort of shot themselves in the foot there. But it is what it is, I suppose. Again, Bumblebee coming back in that way was pretty cool. Having him in the final fight was nice. But yeah, I wish they would have just stuck their guns a little more and had him only come back when... And again, they could have done the same thing of Optimus chooses to destroy the Transwarp key. And then the destruction of that is what sends out like some huge pulse of the Energon or whatever, which is what then awakens Bumblebee. That would have made more sense too than again, I don't know what random like energy burst it was, why that got sent out whenever it did that awakened Bumblebee. 
Um, so the other major thing that happens in this final fight, though, is the homeboy Noah gets an Iron Man suit, pretty much. They have Mirage. He almost dies, but doesn't, protecting Noah. And then he decides to give over his suit to Noah, so it encases him in an armor shell, basically, where he can fire off guns, he can use rocket boosters, and it's literally a straight-up Iron Man suit. So that is very new, massive departure from what we've seen in any of those previous Transformers films. So, again, it was... That was one of the moments where, like, yeah, all the CGI, like the green screen, blue screen background was very evident. It is kind of cool, though, that he was able to have some moments of him fighting on uh, Scourge, I think it was, was the, like, main Terracon guy. Um, Finding him alongside Optimus, where he's going ham, destroying Scourge. So, yeah, I can see why they decided to do it. Because they wanted to have, I don't know, just something distinct and different from any of the previous Transformers films. But the comparison is just so obvious at this point where I guess they just bit the bullet and they were like, yeah, let's give our own Iron Man person in the Transformers universe. So they had that. I will say in terms of one of the action beats I thought was like genuinely cool that i said in theaters i was like okay like that was nice that was a creative way to approach things the mirage character like him having his power apparently is he's able to create duplicates mirages so he can fool attackers or pursuing them i think that idea was pretty cool and used well in the highway chase that happens fairly early on but there's a moment where mirage gets turned around so he's in reverse fleeing from these cops that are chasing after him and then mirage transforms the entire car while they're still moving on that highway to flip around so that he's facing forward again and going the right direction and we see the we see noah in the seat in the driver's seat as the whole car transforms around him to face forward again that was a pretty cool moment like that was really creative so i like things like that where they're able to just give something new and distinct that isn't such a crazy bold choice of like okay now let's just make him a superhero basically um so that was one thing i wanted to give a shout out to it was really nice but i have to bring up the ending which honestly it's so ludicrous so insane i kind of like it again i don't think it's going to go anywhere which is kind of unfortunate but we see like everything was wrapped up the film could have ended this honestly it seemed like it was a a post-credit type scene but they were like you know what let's just fit in at the end of this because we need we need to have people see this setup and see this new like cinematic universe starting and they sit him down in some nondescript location where it seemed like he's doing an interview but it turns out the guy that he's speaking to knows all about Noah, knows all about his trip to Peru and all this stuff with the Transformers. Why? Because he's part of a secret agency called G.I. Joe. That stuff is crazy. They really threw in, not not a G.I. Joe reference, a straight-up G.I. Joe setup. They said, you are 
going to be like invited into the GI Joe. And so how they're going to go about this or what the plan is, were they going to just have a, a separate GI Joe movie just starring Anthony Ramos and maybe Mirage is in it. Maybe he ends up helping out. Were they just going to have another Transformers film? But then now Anthony Ramos is part of the GI Joe and like they are involved in somehow in some way. I don't know what the plan is. And again, it's a very like it's just Hasbro trying to use all the properties that they have on IP combine them because GI Joe has been struggling. They've been trying to get that off the ground for a long time, but it's never been working. So like, you know what? Combine it with Transformers. And honestly, I think that's a smart choice given how they've been unable to have it gain traction on its own. So combining them in some way, I think if they just had a GI Joe standalone with Anthony Ramos, and it's just in that same like Transformers universe, and you know he's like got that Mirage car, that might work. And then if they tie that in later to a Transformers sequel, and it's the GI Joe people coming in with the Transformers fighting whatever threat there would need to be to bring them together, you know what? I'm down for it. It's ludicrous. It's absurd. It's another cinematic universe that they're trying to spawn here but it's just so crazy that i'm all in i'm down for it but that is it for my review for transformers rise of the beasts out of five animal robots i'm gonna give it a three Transformers Rise of the Beasts. If you want to get your fix of the Maximals of the Beasts, then go out and watch it. All right, that is all the time we have. If you would like to give your thoughts on the show, you can email us at theboxofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. If you'd like to give us a review or give us five stars on whatever podcast app you're listening to, we would greatly appreciate that. And be sure to tune in next week when we talk about The Flash. Have a good rest of your day.